Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I was never under any illusion that the signing of the agreement wasn't going to conclude the conflict. It gave us a chance to conclude it. It it opened up a framework within which you could resolve the, the conflict, but it wasn't resolved by it simply by doing the agreement. This year, we're commemorating 25 years of the Belfast Agreement. Yes, 71.12%. Did it ensure peace or entrench sectarianism? The first acid test is that there are thousands of people alive who may all always be dead at this point. Did it secure the union or put us on the path to a united Ireland? And the ethos of the peace process is and always has been this. Unionism must give and nationalism must get. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have given enough long ago and we will give no more. Did it heal the past? or condemn us to relive it every day. We've moved from the bomb and the bullet. The weapon of choice is now politics. And politics, as you know, affects everyone's day and daily life, affects their community, and affects things such as the schools, obviously, and their, their health. Um, and people feel that we're still very much at war. I can't answer those questions, but I suspect my guest in this episode of The Bell Tell, Dr Brian Lampkin, author of Calming Conflict, Northern Ireland, Metaphor and Migration, will certainly have some of the answers. Brian, you're welcome to The Bell Tale. Thanks very much. Well, as an historian, we're here because of history. We're all here because of history, no matter where you are. It's, it's, and, but but we, we don't agree on history and we don't agree on one history. And there are many histories. Why can't we agree on history? Why isn't it that simple? Well... We've a shared. It's a commonplace, isn't it, to say that we've got a we've got a shared history, but we don't have an agreed history because because we all see the world from different vantage points, and we we're not very good at putting ourselves in other people's shoes and seeing the world from somebody else's vantage point, especially those of those who don't think like us, that that aren't in our echo chamber, that are actually opposed to us or are declared enemies. So that's why it's so difficult. Those terms shared, yeah. You know, even even if we can't agree a history, I, I wonder even yeah. can we really say there's a shared history? Well, it's a bit. I mean, if you think about, you think about go back to your school days and think about fights in the school play, playground that may 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 have happened from time to time, and how we deal with those. I mean, so a fight between school children is a shared event, but of course, once. The 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 the, uh, the pair is separated, and the teacher starts to investigate uh, and try to understand. One of the key questions is who started it, and of course, that's where you get the disagreement. No, I didn't start it. He started it. She started it. No, it's the other way around. 
And we're, we're a bit in that sort of situation still, 25 years on after the agreement. We still have no... What's missing from the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is any kind of explanation, any kind of shared explanation of what the conflict was about. So in other words, we've still got a conflict about what the conflict was about. We can't agree. There's kind of conflicting narratives about what caused it, who's to blame, who's responsible. And often the teacher, to use your metaphor, apportions the blame equally on both uh, pupils as a solution, as a temporary solution, as a, as a way of dealing with the problem as it is in those circumstances. But w- maybe one of them or both of them walk away from that confrontation feeling wronged. Exactly, because it's not plausible, is it, to, to come to an agreement that we both started this fight simultaneously. <laughs> yeah, but that's what we're We're equally to blame. And is that the way we resolve disagreements? It's very hard, very hard work. But it we, takes a long time for conflicts. Um, and, and this is what one thing that makes the Northern Ireland conflict so unusual in a global context is that normally where there have been satisfactory peace agreements around the world, some kind of shared understanding about what the conflict has been about has emerged and has enabled a conflict to be some kind of um, agreement, some new architecture to be built on the strength of that. But what's remarkable about this is that the, all such was the disagreement about what the conflict had been about in 1998 that it had to be parked, and it wasn't part of. There was simply an agreement that there was it was a kind of a tragedy, and that we would never we would try never to make we tried to make sure that it never happened again, but we didn't agree an explanation about what it had been about, and we're still disagreeing about that. I, I, I wonder now, I mean, I'm getting very philosophical, but there are three points that are coming up there for me. I mean, you mentioned time, and I wonder, do these things just take time? The the, the sense of an agreed history, is an agreed history necessary to move on? And then, in terms of disputes around the world, I wonder how many disputes are really settled, or is it just that one side wins, and they inflict their version of the of the history on the defeated, and after after a certain length of time, they move on. But the truth is that one side yeah. was beaten. Is that perhaps the the problem? Well, there's. I think all this is where we come to the point that all conflicts are different. They all end differently. Um, that they all have their own specific context. There's no blueprint to dealing with this, um, and that we, that we have to bear that in mind. I mean, in the book, I mention I take make an analogy with the English Civil War. And, uh, and draw attention to the argument that was going on between historians in the 1950s, right through from the 1950s through to the 1970s. And between um, two, two main protagonists, Hugh Trevor Roper and Lawrence Stone, uh, both Oxford men at each other's throats, one taking a Marxist liberal perspective, the other taking a high Tory perspective on what had caused the English Civil War in the 17th century. And it became a kind of proxy for the um, for the Cold War that was going on at the time. So it was a struggle for an explanation of something that had taken place that people generally regarded as settled. People weren't still fighting the Civil War, were they? Or do people still divide into cavaliers and roundheads? But it became kind of a proxy for people lining up on either side. And I think you see it in the context of... I don't think it's too far, far-fetched to say that you have something similar going on in the historians that are writing about the, Northern, the Troubles, the Northern Ireland conflict, 
they're characterizing each other as, broadly speaking, as unionist or nationalist, Catholic or Protestant. Um, so you have conflicting narratives being proposed by people who are perceived to be in favor of uh, one side or the other. How can you how can you reach some kind of agreement without a shared understanding of the problem? Without a, a shared understanding of the causes of the conflict, what are the prospects of being able to come up with proposals that will satisfactorily solve the conflict? So there's a kind of sequence to be gone through, and the, and that maybe is part of the problem with the Belfast Good Friday Agreement that we have a solution, but no agreement about the problem to which it is the solution. Is it a solution or a fudge? Did it, did it solve anything, or did it agree not to solve anything and argue about it later? Well, again, this is another strategy for you park the problem. If if a problem is too difficult, and this has been a strategy throughout the peace process, is parking problems that are too difficult to agree, um, hiving them off, putting them, sidetracking them, and maybe giving the job to a specialist commission to deal with while we get on with the more pressing, urgent stuff that isn't controversial, and that's that's a that's a strategy, but. Um, in order to do that, maybe this is where the, the, the famous expression that David Trimble started to use was constructive ambiguity. And, um, and when does constructive ambiguity become, that depends upon everybody buying into this, is between consenting adults who understand what they're doing. We're, we're, we're coming up with a clever formula of words that we can live with and uh, both sell, if you like, to our our respective constituencies while we get on, but it enables us, we're prepared to do this because it will enable us to get on and do something constructive. And maybe we'll come back to that problem later on. Um, and again, there, there, I mean, here we, the constructive ambiguity, I mean, in a sense, and let's not get too philosophical, but it's rather postmodernist, you could even call it Stalinist, really. You know, uh, do words have meaning? And if we can strip them of meaning, you can do anything. But then one of the things, we don't even know, we can't even agree what to call it. It's really called the Belfast Agreement, but everybody, well, not everybody, but nationalists seem to start to call it the Good Friday Agreement. And But when you people talk about it and you hear people talk about it in the radio, they perceive this document to be something entirely different than what it actually is. You know, for some nationalists, this is this is a stepping stone to United Ireland. For other for unionists, this secured the union. Um, for some people in the middle, they seem to think that this would flower into an agreed Northern Ireland identity, etc. Because people say, they talk about integrated education, for example. And I know you've, you've had a big uh, involvement in integrated education. But people say, well, why aren't the schools all integrated now? Wasn't that in the agreement? Well, yeah. it wasn't really. I'm just listening to what you were saying there about, you used three different metaphors in that last paragraph there. You talked about the Good Friday Agreement being a stepping stone to the future. And it, and you said something like it was as uh, securing the union, which suggests something like uh, assuring up the wall that's the uh, or the connection between uh, Northern Ireland and um, and Britain, and and then you talked about uh, integrated education, the flowering. So the, there's a flower metaphor, there's a there's a stepping stone metaphor, and there's a wall, if you like, uh, metaphor. And I think this is this is this is one of the ways into when you've got people who are disagreeing about what they're talking, finding it difficult to arrive at a shared understanding of the topic that they're trying to discuss. This is one very useful way in. 
um, to look at the, the language that we're using to describe what it is we're talking about, and then to highlight these these are three conflicting metaphors. And then, I, and the one that started, I mean, that, that struck me back in October was um, um, Edwin Poots talking about the. Um, he, he he announced that maybe the unless the the Northern Ireland Protocol was dealt with, it could be the it could herald the funeral of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. A mock funeral for the Good Friday Agreement, dead already, say some unionists, because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Part of the UK's post-Brexit trading arrangement with the EU, the protocol established an effective customs border between Northern Ireland and the British mainland. For unionists, an unacceptable revision of Northern Ireland's place in the UK. Which is to suggest that the, 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 the document is actually a person, a child, that was born in 1998. And, of course, commentators like Alex Kane and uh, Brian Feeney are very quite frequently referring to the state of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement as it's on life support. So suggesting that it's in danger of... Um, so that it's... How, how are we thinking about this thing? So how can, how can a stepping stone be on life support? This sort of... It is trying to get at our understanding of what, what is this thing that we're talking Why is it so important? We have the Good Friday Agreement. It, it was never signed. We talk about it being signed. It wasn't ever signed. Well, it was by the governments. By the governments, but the parties... The parties... We talk about them signing up to the Good Friday Agreement. Well, we? I think there is a document where they, they all put their signatures to it as a kind of a, a memento. Yeah. But it, it didn't have binding force until the referenda, north and south. And then the governments were bound, had already bound themselves to accept the results of the, the referenda. And again, some of, some of the Good Friday Agreement was translated into legislation. It became concrete and courts have discussed what it was, you know, the aspirational document, which is what I believe a learned judge described it as, and this is transformed by legislation into something real. But in the main, I'm describing it with another another metaphor as a, a massive fudge. But sooner or later, you, you people, you just get to the stage where you have to define these things. Yes, Fudging works as long as people are willing to collaborate, in it, to collude, if you like, to use that word, in this is a useful device for getting us over a difficult period. But there's a kind of an understanding that somewhere along the line we're going to have to sort this out properly because it's going to cause us, it's going to come back and, and bite us one way or another. If not in this generation, then maybe in the next generation. So we're continually, I mean, in order to... to to, to keep building peace, this is maybe one of the prices that we have to pay, is to be able to, because we're, it's such a complicated thing to build peace on so many different fronts, that maybe we, this is, we have to identify, we've got a, if we've got a range of pro, half a dozen problems, we can't deal with them all simultaneously, so maybe we'll park the most difficult ones and concentrate on a couple of ones that are the low-hanging fruit that maybe are achievable and then we'll succeed there and that will have had the effect of building trust and enable us to come back to the more difficult problems. But the problem with the past is that uh, it was parked in 1998 and then after St Andrews, uh, Peter Haynes set up the, um, the Eames-Bradley working group to look at the, the problem of dealing with the past it sat for a couple of years and then it came to naught. It failed. And then there were successive attempts, the Stormont House Agreement, the Fresh Start Agreement. 
Um, and then they had the big consultation we had in 2018-19 about addressing the legacy of the past. And now we got the legacy the legacy bill that's so controversial going through Parliament. So there's a problem that's been has been parked, looked at, parked again, looked at again, parked again. And now it's just all the proposals that were developed, the, the Stormont House agreement that was uh, that was developed and consulted on has been set aside uh, in favour of a, of a bill that's now going to effectively draw a line in the past and offer an amnesty. No, so, that's, a, that's a great... It's a great metaphor there again, drawing a line in the sand. Exactly. Um, in the book, I mean, it's 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 for anyone that's seen it's quite a, it's a it's a it's a large book. Do you come up with solutions in the book? I do. The third part of the book is a proposal for um, dealing with the dealing with the past, and it's a it's a it's a proposal for a large scale pro- project that will involve not just a small handful of historians, but a, a large, a, 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 a power-sharing initiative, if you like, of bringing together our, our colleges, that's, that's our, not just our universities, but our schools, primary, secondary, further education colleges, our archives, public record office, our libraries, our, our library service, Northern Ireland Library Service, the Linen Hall Library, um, and our museum service to come together to work on understanding and documenting our past that has brought us to this that brought us to this place. So it's a it's a it's a proposal for two large calm projects, you know, colleges, archives, libraries and museums. For, so a, digi- is, for a digital atlas. So in a sense then, that seems to me, now maybe I'm wrong, but that then you might. It seems to me that you're saying it's necessary to consign this period to history, to historians, to archives, to to museums. Let's professionals deal with this. No, what I'm saying. No, I'm saying it's a, it's arguing for a a partnership between the experts, not just historians, but um, everybody who's got an interest in the humanities in understanding. Uh, and understanding conflict, and everybody else, the ordinary citizen. We all have a duty to understand the role that we, ha- the ha- how we have come to be where we are, as we are, where we live now, in wh- wherever we happen to live in our society. We have a duty to understand our migration story and where we plan to go next. But we need a lot more, a stronger educational resource. That's why it will be very interesting to see what um, the Secretary of State's, the new educational package that's been devised to explain to citizens about the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, how, what, what form that will take. I think an element of the history of the Troubles we we don't have in terms of history, or at least very limited, is is that the stories behind the combatants and some of the stories, some of that can be quite distasteful. Some of people wouldn't want to know, but some victims would like to know. Yes. You know why w- w- was their father targeted, and who did this? You know, and how. And I just wonder, in your plan, is there some sort of way of dealing with that? You know, in terms of speaking to people who were in a paramilitary organisation yeah. to say, "Listen, why did you do this, and how did yeah. you do it?" Or is that, or is that just too much? No, it's not too much. And this is actually going further and saying it's not just the people who are actively involved in combat, or who are who are victims or 
relatives of victims that have an interest in this. We all have an interest in it. We're all, whether we were, whether we regard ourselves as having been touched in any significant way or not, we all have a duty to work together as citizens for the common good. And in order to do that, the better understanding we have of of our own history, our own individual history, that of our communities. Um, and the the other side's community, however we decide to define the other side, so it's about devising an educational resource that will that will assist the the upcoming generation to understand maybe better than than we have done about how we come to be in the situation. We have a the, the, so the we have a duty to explain to the upcoming generation why we why they are inheriting a world in such a conflicted state in order for them to be able to do something about it, hopefully to improve it. I want to ask you about migration, because you're a historian of migration, and and, and I wondered, uh, when I drive home after this interview, I will, in many ways, drive through a map of migration. And I will drive across many borders, and they were set 400 years ago, and yet, they remain as they were 400 years ago. I mean, this townland may be entirely populated by Protestants and is surrounded by townlands entirely populated by Catholics. And those are, those are questions of migration. But I just wonder in terms of history, those borders haven't changed much, if at all, in 400 years. And I just wonder, how much time are we going to need what one thing we are agreed about, and this is the starting point of the book, I think we're all agreed, we're still agreed 25 years on, that Northern Ireland is emerging from conflict, coming out of conflict. And the argument that's developed in the book is that we need to have a slightly more uh, rigorous view of the metaphor of what, what it means to emerge from conflict. So how do you get into conflict in the emerging emerging from conflict suggests that we have been previously submerged by conflict so there's a, we have to understand have to we need to have an explanation as to how we got submerged by conflict in the first place and then how we are this process of emerging from conflict and so i i in the book, I describe it as this is anal- this is this is migration from a world from migration defined as simply moving home from one place to another. So we used to live in a world of conflict, and before that, we lived in a world of relative peace. Before, if you like, nineteen six, whenever you take the starting, whenever the border was crossed into conflict, whether that was nineteen sixty six or sixty eight or sixty nine. Um, but we moved into conflict and now we're moving out of conflict. And this is a migration process. So we used to be at home in a, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I think you possibly are too, Kieran, that the, when, when we believed that we were in the midst of an insoluble problem, that this was going to, we couldn't see a way out. Even as late as March 1998, people were not seeing what was coming, weren't seeing foreseeing agreement. They knew these talks were going on, but it was a rare optimist that saw that something was actually going to happen. But I think since then, we have this general agreement that we're emerging from conflict. But how we're doing that and, um, and where we're actually going to is what we're not, we're not clear about. Where we're going to. 
That I find that very interesting. And many people will say, of course, that many areas have not benefited in social economic terms, or at least don't perceive they've benefited in social economic terms because of the uh, agreement. But that what you said, where we're moving to. Now, I've worked in journalism, I think, now for 16 years. And often when I've been working in radio programs, I've got the impression that the, that the journalist asking the questions has a set understanding of where we are going to or where we should be going to. And that therefore, the why does, why does this politician in front of me, you know, aren't, aren't you with the program? But then when I look at election results and I think, yeah, that solution, that place that that presenter might be going to, clearly that's not where most people want to go to. And I mean that. Let's let, let me be let me move beyond metaphor and say, you know, shared identity, you know, n- people, everyone happy with the Northern Ireland, um, nationalists will give up their dream of United Ireland and unionists can have the union, but they'll just have to tone down the flags a bit. Is that, so so I think a lot of people assume that that's where we're going to. So I'm not just not sure if people agree where we're going to. We we're definitely not agreed. We'll never get to a complete agreement about what caused the conflict. But we can we, it's surely possible to get closer through dialogue rather than debate. I think there's a subtle distinction between dialogue and debate as a process for arriving at a, a shared understanding, uh, at agreement. But to get us so close that we can uh, agree and, and if we have the confidence that professional historians and others are committed to working impartially, in a power-sharing kind of way, towards improving our understanding of what the conflict was about. I think part of the problem at the moment is we don't have, there's not that trust in professional historians. Professional historians have a very checkered past to face up to regarding their work in explaining to the public about what the conflict has been about. And I think there's a, there's, um, and that's part of the peace process as well, post-peace process as well that hasn't really started properly. Working in radio programs, you know, we might book a nationalist historian and a, and unionist historian. And those terms are, will be freely used and many historians would not refuse those labels. And that's incredible. QED, yes. Uh, uh, that's part of the culture. And again, we mentioned even politics of a different kind. You know, some some historians will be Marxist historians. That went out of fashion for a while. I think it's definitely back. And other historians will be more, as you say, uh, high Tory historians. So th- th- I suppose that place in the middle, the professional historian is yeah. where we're all striving for. I know as a journalist, you know, that I try and think professional journalists. One thing I do in the book is I try to draw attention to the point where trust between British and Irish historians broke down in 1969. But it it, it really marked a point where I think everybody takes sides. And this is the problem about conflict. When you say when a conflict breaks out, the middle ground disappears, no man's land disappears because that's the most dangerous place to be. You want to shelter in the trenches of one side or the other. And people are forced to make choices about this. The book, and if anyone goes to, it's available in any bookshop uh, and, and it's now available in uh, electronic form. Yes, with a new appendix. 
with the new appendix, which is focused on the on the on the twenty fifth anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and it's it's about the it's called the the appendix is called the conflicted archaeology and genealogy of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, and it's about a document that I think very people very few people still know about. I only discovered this um, last summer um, that the Progressive Unionist Party produced a document in 1977 called Sharing Responsibility. And the academic, the American academic that studied this says that this, he reached the conclusion that this document had the potential to end the conflict 20 years before 1998. It's a critique of power sharing that that was a bad word in the 1970s amongst some people and and coming up to the um, the Anglo-Irish agreement, certainly. Um, but the preferred term is sharing responsibility. And I think it's just very interesting to consider the nuanced difference between what is meant by power sharing and sharing responsibility. Or are we simply using two different terms to make ourselves feel more comfortable with the concept? Exactly. Final, final question. The book. Anyone who sees the book and picks it up in their hands will realise this is a massive labour of love. Uh, what inspired you to, because I mean, this is, it's, it's a large book. It's comprehensive. There are thousands of quotations and uh, it's, it's extremely diligently done. What inspired you to, to produce this book? It was working in an integrated school and the problem that as working as a history teacher in an integrated school, I think it would have been in whatever school, um, because history teachers everywhere are confronted with the same problem. How do you explain to children what the fighting was about? And you go to the literature and you don't get any clear guidance. Uh, teachers using textbooks to teach subjects you have confidence in the the textbook writers generally speaking that this is this is sound material that i'm using in this textbook to pass on to my students but the problem with, uh, with for history teachers was there, there was you go to the professional historians and what you do not find is a shared explanation of what the conflict is about which is interesting because it makes the it makes learning history that more challenging and, and may be interesting um, because you're you're asking students to form judgments about conflicts of interpretation. Um, but I think it's, it's, it seemed to me quite clear that the prospect of reaching some kind of lasting agreement depended, depends on reaching some kind of shared understanding about what the problem is that we're trying to solve. And it's about finding a, a more constructive way of telling our children about why the place that they live in has this kind of history and um, encouraging them to maybe take this, take the work of reconciliation and reconstruction and that bit further in the next generation. Dr. Brian Lampkin, thank you very much. Thanks, Gary. This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Times Radio, The Independent, BBC and Sky News. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 